0: This is Ryan Martin, the host of Psychology and Stuff. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you like psychology. And if you like psychology, you will love All the Rage, the podcast on anger and violence out of Phoenix Studios. On All the Rage, my co-host Chuck Ryback and I talk about everything from internet trolls to toxic masculinity to road rage. We bring you mad science, anger management tips, and tons of stories about people losing their cool. You can learn more about All the Rage and other Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. All right, welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the psychology program and host of Psychology and Stuff. And today we have a really exciting guest. Uh, Carolyn Yule graduated from UW-Green Bay back in 2008 and went on to earn a master's in forensic psychology and a PhD in experimental psychology but with an emphasis in forensics from the University of North Dakota and she is back today to talk a little bit about forensic psychology what it is probably what it isn't and so on how are you Carolyn good how are you I'm doing really well so um, it's always fun because you were here when I was pretty much a brand-new professor and you were in my abnormal psychology class so probably back in like 2007 or so ish
1: yeah somewhere in
0: there welcome so it's always fun to talk to alum who are doing awesome stuff Um, we have a lot of students who are interested in forensic psychology especially when they come to UW-Green Bay so I talk to lots of first-year students and they say I want to be a forensic psychologist so we're going to start out with maybe the most important question I'm going to ask you which is What is forensic psychology?
1: Okay, so forensic, very broadly, it just means the intersection of psychology within the legal system. So that comes in very many roles. So it can be very behind the scenes doing research, looking at policy evaluations, um, designing research studies, and looking at the impact of things such as eyewitness testimony, um, things such as the cross-race effect, all kinds of different um, social psych concepts lend very nicely to the legal system. Mm-hmm. It also has to do with uh, clinical psychology fits in in there very neatly as well. Uh, when you think of I, um, insanity defense or competency to stand trial issues, things like that. Um, so all those areas kind of lend themselves very nicely to psychology and the law. So. Um, sometimes forensic psychologists will do, like I mentioned, competency evaluations. They might serve as an expert witness. They might work in a research facility. They might work as a statistician, running numbers. Um, they might do risk assessments, things like that.
0: Okay. So what what are um, what are some of the places that people work? Like the the, the types. I mean you know, psychologists in general end up yep. working kind of everywhere. So yeah. I, a part of what I want to know is where do forensic psychologists end up working?
1: Pretty much the same. Same. Right. It's kind of a little bit of everywhere. So okay. sometimes they'll work with attorneys doing, um, one of the women I graduated with was working for an attorney helping prep cases. Um, she's now working doing competency evaluations and sanity evaluations. Um, There's, you can do...
0: So if you do that, is it, um, sorry to interrupt, but if you do that, is it? Is it, like, are you, is it a private practice that they have, where they're sort of hired by attorneys in that way? Okay.
1: Yep, they can do um, jury selection as a private practice, trial consulting, um, so they can help with prepping cases. There are um, a number of students in the program that I went through go work with attorneys and try to help prep cases, build defenses, or I mean, it just happens to be a defense attorney in town. But right. um, you could work for prosecution, too, I suppose.
0: Okay. So the popular culture perception of forensics is, I think, very different from very. what you just described. So yeah. tell me a little bit about what you see sort of from popular culture and how um, some of the, the myths out there.
1: Yeah. So everyone thinks um, I want to be like the people on Criminal Minds. And that is so not what forensic psychology is about. Real profiling isn't really a real job. There's like only two people that really do it for a living and they sit in a basement in the FBI building. They don't actually go out and fly anywhere and do they don't solve a case in a nice hour long or even a week. I mean, they're working (laughs) with just papers and they're not really doing much. Um, Profiling itself isn't really all that accurate, um, which popular culture would definitely Lead you to think dispute, that it, yeah. yeah, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, am I, um, I, so I will admit to never having watched that show. Um, people, in fact, not even really knowing what it is, other than if people tell me all the time about it or ask me if I watch yeah. it. So is the premise, are they calling themselves forensic psychologists on the show? Um, is
1: they, uh, The premise is that they are profilers. Oh, okay. so, um, That they're going to come in and use all of these, you know, um. In theory, it's kind of accurate where you're using kind of statistics and psychological principles, mm-hmm. um, but it's not portrayed gotcha. very well at all. Right. So.
0: And as you said, it, it forensics uh, profiling does yeah. not have a very high success rate. No. Uh, people no. have compared it to reading tea leaves and yeah, a host of much. other things. So. Um, I, and my understanding, too, is that a lot of that when there are profilers, that most of them their, their backgrounds are not in psychology, that they get there via other yeah, you know, other m- avenues.
1: Yeah, most people who are successful at profiling mm-hmm. um, just totally rely on their gut or mm-hmm. intuition. They don't really follow any psychological principles or have any of that psychological background that you might think right. that they would.
0: Right. So, if you want to be a profiler, the long story is probably don't major in psychology. You probably no. go a different, <laughs> different route. No. I'm, I'm curious since we're talking about it, have you watched the show? Uh, the, it's a relatively new Netflix show, Mindhunter.
1: I have you, not. But, you, but I did read um, John Douglas's Mindhunter book. Oh, okay. So, if it's based on the same premise, then. We had to read it for a course. So, oh, really? Yeah. What
0: was your – so since we're talking about the book, what what was – what's your take on the book? Or do you have a take on the book?
1: Um, <laughs> well, the book kind of gives you – I mean, if you read through the book, you kind of get a more accurate picture of what profiling is really like. Mm-hmm. Although John Douglas does not necessarily have – he d- doesn't have the background that you would think. Right. And he's not um, – it's definitely kind of a one-sided story with his, gotcha. with his successes. Oh, okay.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I don't actually know if the show is based on that or not. It is, it is about the, essentially the creation of that unit in the yeah. FBI. And so it goes back to the, yeah. um, is that the book as well? or no?
1: Somewhat. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, and it's, it is, it, the part that's interesting for me just be, I'm like halfway through this show and so I'm, Um, But the part that is interesting to me is the way in which neither of these two have any backgrounds in psychology and how actually they're kind of shunned by the academic community that they did actually reach out to um, psychology professors who were studying some of these topics and they did not have... um, any success, and then finally they've kind of linked up with a with an academician um, and are now doing some research together yeah. and things. So it's an interesting show, but it sounds I, I suspected it was going to um, well be less than accurate. So. Yeah. All right. So well, let's we've talked plenty about what it's not. So let's get back a, a little bit <laughs> to what it is, because my um, I think what you said is really interesting about people can work lots of different places and then you know and then I mean whether it's working with um, that you know sometimes it's about these competency hearings and things like that it's also about victim services yep. it's also um, uh, a host of other sorts of things how did you become interested in this and what tell me a little bit about your story and,
1: and yep so after graduating from UWGB I started working at Marion House which isn't in existence anymore, but it, it was here in Green Bay and it was a homeless shelter and transitional living program for um, homeless teen, teen moms, basically. <laughs> um, so I would regularly have to deal with the legal system in my position there because um, a lot of our girls were there on court orders or um, some of them were there. Um, had parole officers, things like that. And I found myself always kind of lost in the legal system and not really knowing a ton about it um, and struggling to be as strong of an advocate for my clients as I wanted to be. So I thought I would try to learn more about it and Mm -hmm. looked into graduate school and Applied and all
0: right. That's that. All right. So and so you, and then you went to you got your master's again and we said in forensics. Yep. Um, t- walk me through a little bit like what the curriculum is like at that level. What are some of the courses you took? Part of this is for students who are considering this route, but yep. also just to give people a sense for what the what the degree is like.
1: Yep. So we took courses. Um, there we had to take three statistics courses. So a mm-hmm. univariate multivariate and then an experimental methods type course and then um, we had to take a variety of different forensic courses so like an intro level what is forensic psych Um, and then a psychology and law course we took a profiling course Um, we took what else i took a victimology course um Two years goes by fast. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you yeah. do a thesis in there. So it's, okay. Um, they also have, UND also has an online portion, which is really similar. Uh, you just don't do a thesis.
0: Okay. So. And I want to talk about the, both your thesis and your dissertation, because they're both really fascinating topics to me. Um, tell me about a, a victimology course. What, what are, what is that? What are you studying in a victimology course? So
1: uh, the victimology course I took was a little bit strange. Um, it was ca- taught through a different department on campus, okay. and there was a big time conflict, so she actually had me sit in with the undergraduates oh. and then just do some additional work outside of the course for, okay. to make it graduate level. Um, so it was a, more the traditional like lecture format that right. undergrads are used to, which is not what most graduate level courses right. are, so it was a bit different in that, but you learn a lot about the different theories behind victimology, learn about the theories behind victim blaming, Um, learn about victim reactions, uh, and then various crimes and lots of, uh, like, cycle of abuse type things.
0: That's really interesting. When you say the different reactions of victims, you know, I imagine, as I'm thinking through that, that it, it would, there are some some big differences based on type of crime oh, but, yes. al- but also probably s- a lot of similarities that are going to be true across type of crime you know that um and, and so um but it's interesting I, mean, I can imagine how that would be an incredibly broad course where yeah. you're taking <laughs> on a lot of different topics because a person who's been sexually assaulted that's a very different or potentially a very different experience in a lot of ways than someone who's been you know I don't know, had their car broken into, right, Right. you know, and that both of those things, yeah, they're traumatic and upsetting, but in very, very different ways. Right. Right. Um, So tell me about that thesis. You said you did your thesis on child sexual abuse. Can you unpack that a little bit? What did you do? What did you find?
1: So while working at Marion House, um, we were involved in an aftercare program where we were talking with moms who had graduated from the program a long time before I had even started there. So like 10 10 plus years ago. So a lot of their kids were uh, in adolescence or late childhood, things of that nature. And um, one thing that was kind of striking to me is the number of uh, young girls at Marion House who who, when they were clients or before they became clients, actually, I should specify before, not during, um, they were victims of child sexual abuse growing up. And then I noticed that a striking number of people that we were contacting through our aftercare program, their children were also ab- being abused. And I thought to myself, like, well, you know, why don't why why don't these women see some of the warning signs if they themselves are victims? And that's kind of what led me to my master's thesis. So it's, but um, my master's thesis was looking at the impact of transgenerational child sexual abuse. So. Um, when we look at children who are abused or women who are abused as children sexually their children are at a huge risk Mm -hmm. to be sexually abused and when you look at the research that tries to explain why there's that big increase in risk they all have some type of some it's very direct and some it's a little more indirect but they all kind of blame the mom so it's um, she was abused. She didn't deal with her trauma, so she doesn't. She's not as good of a parent. Um, and some are more explicit, but mm-hmm. it's all kind of there's a lot of mother blame in that. So,
0: so presu- I just want to clarify. So presumably, the the children who are the Trent, the second generation, yep. are being are being uh, abused by not the mom, not the by, mom, gotcha, right, right, by just the,
1: by um, someone, someone. Okay. So either uh, husband, boyfriend. Um uncle. Right. Yeah, okay. Any anybody. Gotcha. But, okay. Yep. But there's a big it's like I wanna say three to eight times or something. I mean it's it's a big, big risk. That's pretty increase. extraordinary. I mean, right. just on the
0: surface, I can see why you wanted to investigate that. Yeah. I mean, that's so, a, a really amazing thing. Once you rule out the the mom being the perpetrator right. and that yeah. that is pretty extraordinary.
1: Yeah. So I wanted okay. to kind of look at um, kind of get it okay, if in academia and all this research, we are blaming, you know, the, the mother is being blamed somehow, is, are, you know, people gonna do this? Like in the general population, or if you have, if you bring this into a court setting, could it be used, could this mother's past history be used against her? Um, so that's kinda what sparked the interest for my for my thesis. So we looked at Um, whether or not that impact was there. And my manipulation was really, really subtle. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much of an impact, because it didn't have an impact on whether or not they, how much they blamed a mother Mm -hmm. or um, a non-offending father, so a father who wasn't. Right. Um, They blamed both parents pretty much equally. Um, And, but the only thing, so I did ask explicitly if a mother had this history should she be more vigilant? And people mm. said yes, like overwhelmingly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was like eighty percent or right. something ag- agreed that she should be more vigilant, but they didn't actually translate in that into holding right. her more culpable for mm-hmm. the child's abuse. So, huh?
0: Interesting. It but is, again, that could be my manipulation not right. being
1: strong enough because yeah. it was really
0: subtle. So what? Uh, it's it's sort of a funny. Finding in some ways that the yeah. idea that you've experienced something means that you should be more vigilant. About. Yeah. I mean, it just sort of feels like we should all be pretty vigilant about, right. it, about that, regardless right. of what we've experienced, right? right? Um, I don't. Yeah. Um, so there's so there's that piece too. What does explain to the best that we can? And maybe we don't have an answer to this, but what does explain that the transgenerational piece, what that increase from three days? Yeah. Do we not know?
1: I. We don't know. Huh. Uh, if you look at a lot of research, it'll say um, part of it might be related to socioeconomic status. So if you're abused, um, sometimes they have poor educational outcomes, which leads to lower socioeconomic statuses later in life, or they might become pregnant as a result of the abuse, If it depending right. on how loosely you define child. Right.
0: Um, yeah, I wondered if it was, you know, At a certain point, you start looking at things like poverty and and those questions to try and determine. But very interesting. So and then, okay, so you go on and your dissertation is experimental with an emphasis in uh, forensics. I'm curious, and one of the things in a moment I'm going to turn to kind of how we, how a student can... Earn a you know a student who is interested in forensics, real forensics, not not the pop culture version, but um, a student who's interested in that, how they can t- can get there. Um, but before we do, to tell me a little bit, I'm curious about the uh, the dissertation because your dissertation you were telling me is on uh, was a feminist analysis of online revenge porn.
1: So that uh, wasn't my dissertation. Oh, dis- oh, that's okay. Uh, okay. It was a project I did during my dissertation. Oh, I misunderstood. But okay. my di- dissertation was on revenge porn also. Okay. So. Okay. Very very so, much related. Well, so the, tell me
0: about both of them because okay. I'm, I'm curious.
1: Yep. So the uh, online analysis we looked at, so basically the, the whole idea to do the online analysis, which is kind of scary, um, we read a, an article that came out um, and it said that because men are more likely to be victims of online identity theft and other online crimes, that they are more likely to be victims of revenge porn which for anyone who doesn't know what revenge porn is, is um, it's sometimes called non-consensual pornography, but it has to do with intimate photo sharing that is non-consensual. So if a couple are, there's a, if two people are in a relationship and one sends nude photos to the other and they break up, someone posts it online. It first started as um, a way to kind of get revenge, which Mm -hmm. is why it was, initially termed revenge porn but uh, it's become bigger than that but so anyway this this article said that men might be more likely to be victims of this and we're like no that doesn't (laughs) sound right no that's definitely wrong and of course nobody had done anything to really prove that so we were like well i guess we'll prove it so we Went on seven different revenge porn websites and analyzed photos and comments under the photos, which are horrible, but um, right. But yeah.
0: So I've read, so I've read a little bit about revenge porn in the again popular media, not yep. the science behind it. I guess I wasn't aware of the fact that there are specific sites for yes. that. Okay. There's oh. a lot of
1: problems with the site. So, I mean, other than that it's just terrible <laughs> you to do, don't but, say. but <laughs> okay. when you're thinking yeah. of doing a content analysis, there's a lot right. of problems with looking at these websites because they frequently get shut down and are reopened under new names. Oh. So, even if you uh, like a you can get a particular website shut down, there's nothing to stop the the same people from Right. You know, starting up a new website and using the same images because once right. the image is out there, it can be downloaded, shared, saved.
0: Right. And and that's what I was reading about was the, the degree to which yeah. um, that happens, but also how so often the websites, you know, they basically plead no responsibility because they're not the ones that created the content. Right. Correct. They just received it and posted it, yep. you know, and so the person in their their, their rationale is essentially, look, someone else yep. someone else did this, we're just posting it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think they're they're not even the ones posting it, right? they Sometimes
1: no. Yeah, so it's it's like a user
0: who... Yeah, um, so it's
1: a whole host, because I mean, it might be that they were on a different website and found these photos and they saved them and then right. we'll upload them to the next website that they right. go to. Um, so okay. it can be kind of... So we looked at like the terms and conditions of the various websites, whether or not they had, um, we, the only reason, uh, the reason we only visited seven sites is because we only allowed our lab um, to look at websites that had a specific disclaimer, saying that there could not be children on the websites, because I'm like, we're not gonna engage in le- illegal right. activity for science, we'll do terrible <laughs> right. things, but we're gonna cross right. that, we're not gonna cross that line, so. Right,
0: okay. Um,
1: so some websites have that disclaimer, others don't.
0: Right. So presumably maybe you said this, but presumably what you found is that women are more often the victims. Yeah, right?
1: like 92 percent. Okay yeah. so that
0: other article was incorrect.
1: Yeah. When I, yeah, and
0: the reason I speculated that is because <laughs> I mean we know from a lot of research that women are f- far more often targeted online yeah. in, in any and every way, right They're more yeah. often the victims of harassment and and bullying and yeah. and things like that. And so that it sounded fishy, yeah, uh, to, to say the least yeah um any other findings from that study that that jump out that are important for people to know
1: um if there is a male victim they often assume that it's a homosexual or bisexual um, i mean they right. explicitly target sexuality for males um which i thought was right not necessarily all that surprising but somewhat interesting um we looked at how much personal information is shared because sometimes Some of these websites encourage you to include the person's name, place of work, um, all these other things. So some websites didn't, and there's almost nothing about the person submitting the the photo. So a lot of times it's, there's nothing there or it's a username that could be anything.
0: Wow, okay. Um, when then, it, So your dissertation was also on revenge yep. porn. Can you tell us a yep. little bit about that work?
1: So my dissertation was on revenge porn, and I also combined that with weight stigma. So looking oh, wow. at whether or not a victim would be thin, overweight, or obese, um, or of average weight mm-hmm. and whether or not that would make a difference in how much sympathy people had toward the victim or how responsible a perpetrator was for his his or her crimes. Um, and then I also varied victim gender. So.
0: Okay. And what what, uh, what did you find?
1: Um, so initially I'd wanted to show photos, but I wanted to graduate. Gotcha. <laughs> so I didn't have time to pilot photographs right. and make you know make sure they were comparable on levels of attractiveness and mm-hmm. and whatnot so we just manipulated the victim's weight and mm-hmm. and gave like a brief statement about appearance so how salient it is to mention that i
0: mm-hmm.
1: i mean people passed a manipulation check when we asked him but right i okay. don't know how how much of an impact it had so it'd be right. interesting to repeat with right. with photos but um so looking at basically we found that people like the Average-sized victim, the most they felt the most pity for. They mm-hmm. don't like a really thin victim. They don't like a hmm. don't like a fat victim. So,
0: you know, every now and then I'm just kind of struck by the fact that people are weird. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I mean, I, it's it's funny to me because I have studied psychology for a while, and you know, but every now and then I'm sort of struck by a finding that just says, "Wow, people, strange things matter to yeah. people," and that's yeah. an example of strange things mattering. Yeah. That, that we could only sort sort of muster up enough pity for people who look a certain way is yeah. weird and alarming.
1: Yeah, so it's thing. interesting that it matters even even you know when there isn't a description of right. it's just crazy. Yeah. And then women tend to be more sympathetic toward victims and assign harsher punishments, which I found in mm-hmm. my dissertation as well. So. Right.
0: Yeah very interesting stuff so let's talk a little bit about for those students who are interested in forensics who say this is what i want to do i'm really interested in the way in which psychology and the legal system work um how how do you do it what is the route to go
1: so a background in psychology is really good Uh, Mm -hmm. you'd want to have a strong background in statistics And then depending on which area of forensic psychology you're most interested in because it's it's just about as broad as psychology Um, so if you're interested in um, kind of some of the more clinical aspects you'd want to really have a strong background in abnormal or social personality Mm -hmm. things like that if you're interested in some of the research you can take courses that kind Mm -hmm. of align with your specific research interests so if you're interested in like the cross race effect you might take some social psych and some cognitive psych Mm -hmm. courses so it kind of really depends on what your Mm
0: -hmm. what
1: type of forensic psychology you're most interested in Mm um that that probably doesn't help at all no that's
0: (laughs) that is helpful and so to what degree because i'm and i'm gonna i've been making an assumption here but um you know, a lot of times when you're in graduate school, you're also participating in the recruitment of new students, yep. right, in the admissions process for new graduate yep. students. So Did you do some of that when you were yeah. There? Okay. Yeah,
1: a little bit. I, so I was the, um, it, my ad- advisor in graduate school actually, during my time there, became the director of the forensic science programs, okay. or forensic psych, not forensic science. Okay. Um, and she, so I be, as part of my assistantship was her assistant. So okay. Helping with admissions, um, they do and the online program does a capstone course, so helping with that, um, just whatever and
0: Very good. whenever okay. she <laughs> needed it. Nice. So okay. Um,
1: but one of the one of the things that we saw that I you know kind of came to learn over time is that anyone who in their admissions essays, would write things like, "I want to be a profiler." They pretty much got in that no pile immediately because they they didn't, you know, the with the assumption that you don't have a strong enough background right. to really know what you mm-hmm. want to do in psychology to to right. not even realize that that's not <laughs> what
0: this field is. That's not like, yeah. yeah. So. Um, to what degree does a background in a criminal justice or law also help? You know, if you were to yep. say, uh, you know, major in psych and minor in something related to criminal justice or sociology or yep. legal studies, is
1: I would say it would depend heavily on what type of forensic psych okay. you wanted to do. So if you wanted to do things like um, jury consulting, it would help you a lot. If you uh-huh. wanted to do things like understand, um, or work with the legal system in any way directly um, versus kind of on the, on the research side, right. it would help you immensely oh. because that was one of the things, I had no background in the right. criminal justice system mm-hmm. or courses or anything mm-hmm. except for the little bit of court that I went to as, a, right. at, you know, as an employee at Marion House. So, just,
0: right. so like a lot of grad programs, it's all about fit. You know, and, oh, and do you have the, you know, the, yep. the specific things that they're yep. that this type of program is looking for?
1: yeah, And there are programs um, if you have a really strong emphasis or interest in kind of the legal aspect and mm-hmm. and working directly with the justice system. A program they have a lot of um, a lot of schools are starting to offer joint JD PhD programs. So yep. if that is something that if you're really interested in working directly with the legal system, might be a really good fit for that type of person
0: so yeah you know i was i'm glad you mentioned that because that was something i was wondering yep. I, I think i've heard about some of those programs but wasn't 100 sure yep. if they existed or if i'd made yep. it up or what. Nope. so okay so it's real huh? yep, not just real. a fever dream i had um super so uh throw out i guess what what piece of advice would you have for someone listening right now say that they are a sophomore or a first-year student studying psychology thinking this might be the the route they want to go What what advice do you have for them?
1: Um, Figure out what type of forensic psychology you're interested in, and then develop a course plan that kind of reflects that. So if you're not sure, just pick up like one of the they make intro textbooks that are that can give you a better you know intro psych or forensic psych textbooks that are um, or you know you might be able to get a cheap used version online or something that. I know textbooks are not cheap. No. But, but you might be able to get find something that can give you an, a better idea of where mm-hmm. where is the best fit for you. Um, and then talk to people. So if you think that you're interested in doing trial consulting, try to find somebody who does that. Email them and ask if you can pick their brain or what type of background mm-hmm. they might have. And you never know what people will... Most people right. are happy to talk about themselves and right. network and do those things, so it can be a really good connection yeah. for students to make.
0: And I love that advice, just for all students. The idea and I always think, if you know, if you can, and I, I don't expect students to have it figured out by the time they are a sophomore. I certainly didn't. But um, but if you can get a sense for the area you are interested in in going and then plan out your academics accordingly. You're gonna be in a good spot. There are some experiences that are gonna be helpful no matter what you do, but then a lot of times when it comes to course selection and things like that, it just gives you that that extra sort of push that might take to get into a program very very good so um, well I want to say thank you very much Carolyn for being here Um, and this is great this is really really helpful Um, do you have anything else you want to add or anything else you want to say before we call it a day
1: Um, nothing I can think of. (laughs) All right.
0: Well, thank you very much. That was great. Um, I would love to tell our listeners what we're doing on our next episode, but I don't know what we're doing on our next episode. We got lots of cool ideas. Um, Our intern, Sophie Seeland, who is here right now. Thanks, Sophie. uh, And I have been talking about some good stuff, including uh, a movie night uh, where we do a podcast afterwards and um, finally talking about anger on the show, which we have not yet done. Uh, So... Uh, lots of good stuff coming up, but we don't know what that good stuff is going to be next time. So uh, we'll figure that out. Uh, you'll just have to tune in. In the meantime, I want to thank Sophie, our intern. Thank you, Sophie. I want to thank Kate Farley, our producer. And I want to thank Kimberly Vleese, our podcast artist. That is it.